keep bringing you down? Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. Hi folks, Jack Spierko here with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas today with episode 489 of the Survival Podcast. And today we're going to talk about security. We're going to talk about it in relation to um, two episodes I just recently watched of season two of The Colony. And I have to tell you, season one had me wanting to gouge my eyeballs out with a spoon. I was so angry watching the incompetence of the people they put into this scenario. And since they were going on Discovery, and on The Colony, I don't know, I would have thought that anybody who wanted to be on there might have watched season one of The Colony and learned something. Apparently not. Um, it almost looks like, you know, like in a jury, you want to make sure no one has any prior knowledge that they, they got cast for this show that had no prior knowledge of the show. Uh, unlike some other reality shows, which suck. I mean, honestly, I'm not big into reality TV, but usually at least you see people like they, they pay attention to the prior seasons and they learn something and apply it. Doesn't seem to be the case here. Anyway, the show's not all bad, and today's show's not really going to be about the colony. I'm just going to use it as a leaping off point to talk about security. It's something we've never really discussed in depth, and I feel that it's time that we do that, because one thing I could say for this show, it showed me the lack of understanding of threats that most people have. And I think even some in the survival niche, in the survival world, don't really understand threats and how they work. And I don't just mean big threats, I mean little threats, small threats, threat mitigation, attack mitigation. We're going to talk about all these things today. Before we do, let's go ahead and knock out our housekeeping housekeeping item one. Let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one is Common Sense Prep. What would you find at Common Sense Prep? Well, you'll find exactly what the name tells you you're going to find. All types of things to help you prepare in a very common sense, rational, no tinfoil hat way. Everything from great reading material uh, with Paladin Press books to great water harvesting uh, options and all other types of things in between. So check out commonsenseprep.com. And remember, you can find their banner and all of our sponsors' banner at thesurvivalpodcast.com in our right-hand margin. Next up today is Western Botanicals. Western Botanicals, to me, is the source for herbs and uh, herbal preparations and the knowledge with how to use them. Check out westernbotanicals.com. I should also note today um, that uh, we, you know, we always talk about you joining the Members Brigade, Member Support Brigade. Both of these sponsors support the Members Brigade. Western Botanicals has a premium membership that's $50 a year. You get that free if you are a member of the Member Support Brigade. So, you know, the Members Brigade's 50 bucks. The preferred membership to Western Botanicals is 50 bucks. That one benefit pays for itself. And then you get 15% off of all the Palette Press books at Common Sense Prep. Those are just two of the benefits. So we'll put the MSB kind of earlier than we normally do in the housekeeping today. Just say, hey, you want to support the show? 
20 cents an episode to do that by joining the Members Brigade. And there's two benefits right there that more than pay for an entire year of membership. By the way, if you heard any barking in the background, it was one of my security systems, Blackie the uh, Black Lab Mix, trying to kill the FedEx man. He doesn't like people in uniforms for some reason. Anyway, um, I also wanted to remind you, do connect with us on our social media platforms, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Please help me on Facebook, folks, man. Brian Black is kicking my ass right now on getting more Facebook fans than me. And I know we have a lot more people out there than are reading his blog, because I can look at Alexa rankings alone and see who gets more visitors to their site. All I need you to do is go to Facebook, uh, log into your account. If you don't have an account, please set one up to help me win this. And... Um, search on Facebook for The Survival Podcast, pull up the show page, and click on like at the top. Please do that for me. Right now, I think we're behind by about 200. And I think we can make that up in a day with one big move. Please help me do that. Um, and last but not least, I do want to remind you guys of my new little business podcast called Five Minutes with Jack. That's at jackspeaker.com. And with that, we'll go ahead and knock out housekeeping and get into the main topic of today's show, which again is about security. Um, if we're going to talk about security, we have to uh, we have to first understand the need for it, and we have to understand uh, the, the the needs of survival before we even look at security as one of them. There's there's five primary components to survival, and let's go over them real fast because I think that the, there's four of them that take away from the fifth, which is probably the linchpin and most important, with a caveat that we'll get to. The five primary components of survival are food, water, shelter, fire, and security. All right, and it's, it's that simple. If you, can, if you can master those five things, if you can provide yourself with something to eat, clean water to drink, shelter to protect you from the, evidence, uh, the elements, fire to provide you with warmth, heating, signaling, cooking, and to use as a tool for fabrication, and you can provide yourself with security, you can survive damn near anything other than if you get sick and die. There are things in nature that can take you out, and there's nothing you can do about it. That doesn't mean that you don't try. Let's talk for a second today about why security usually gets mentioned last, and why it goes to the back of the mind. It, It starts out with the fact that there's food. It's a necessary thing. And as soon as you're hungry, you feel it. There's a sensation of needing food. As soon as you're thirsty, you have a sensation telling you you need water. As soon as you're too hot or too cold or too wet, you have a feeling for the need for shelter. And fire is intrinsic to the human soul, as far as I'm concerned, about warding off things at night, providing you warmth, and if you want to eat, the ability to cook. And with water, you're thirsty, so you need usually to boil water in a survival situation if you don't have good water stored up. So the first four are things that we do every day as well. We just don't see them as survival skills because we, we take them for granted. In other words, we eat every day, we drink every day. We go to our homes every day, and we use fire daily, even if we don't use it in the form that we normally think of it when we call it fire. We use fire when we turn the furnace on in our home. We use fire when we turn the oven on, when we turn the grill on, when we turn the stove on. These are all things that are fire. In essence, reality speaking, we use fire when we turn on a light bulb. Okay, And, and a light bulb and fire, in, in right circumstances, provide the exact same thing, illumination. So the first four we use every single day, and we have physical needs for them 
that are independent of any threat. All right? We don't have to be attacked to need food. And I often tell people on this show that you better focus first, okay, during the, but I want to understand this today, I want to be clear about this today. During the peacetime planning phase, you better focus first on food, water, shelter, and fire. You got to focus on making sure you can feed yourself and you can supply yourself before you go out and buy 52 guns, you know, one for every day of the week. But the re only reason I say that is because if you have security without the other four, you will die. You'll starve, you'll freeze, you'll overheat, you'll dehydrate, okay? That's the only reason they come first, because security may be necessary, the other four will be necessary in every single scenario. It doesn't mean that security is not very high. It also doesn't mean that sometimes security doesn't become priority number one immediately, even if it wasn't yesterday. This is where I'm going to tie into the colony. I'm going to hopefully help everybody see and learn something from this. If you haven't watched episode one yet, you know, go to Discovery. I think you can watch it online at Discovery Channel or uh, you know, DVR it. They, you know, they, you know, Discovery is when they bring out a new series, they rebroadcast episodes over and over again. But in episode one, the colonists are taken to this uh, supposedly provided by the government place. And there's only ten of them, and they're dropped off. It's like an old warehouse district, and all the houses are destroyed. And it's actually a place that was really destroyed by Hurricane Katrina in, in southern Louisiana. And they're just left there, and they have very little stuff. They have some medical supplies and about six days' worth of food. And they make their priority initially finding a place to stay, shelter, putting all the food together and assessing how much they have food, creating drinking water by pulling water out of a canal and filtering it and then boiling it. And uh, it's all about the food, the water, the shelter, and the fire. And they almost act like they're on some kind of a camping trip and they're all high-fiving when they make fire by using a battery and some jumper cables to make a spark and you know they make a sand filter. And I'm not saying that any of those actions are wrong, but here is the way I would have assessed it. There's structures everywhere. We have time to determine... Which structure is best? And we could even have one person doing that immediately, and that probably wasn't wrong. And that structure becomes ground zero. And it certainly wasn't a tent, and they were smart by not choosing a tent. And they, they chose a structure. Food, we don't need to even think about food for three days. We have six days worth of food. We have three days to secure the compound before we even need to start looking for food. If it presents itself, we take the opportunity. Water is a priority, but it can be done very quickly and it could be done by one person. Fire, necessary for the water, again, two people could take care of water and fire, and the fire person builds the fire, stokes the fire, gathers some wood, and the water person takes care of boiling some water. And we only need enough water in the initial phase to last us about three to four days. Everything else should have been dedicated to creating the most security you could with what you have. In episode two, they've already had their ass kicked twice uh, in, in the first episode, and they know that there's going to be people coming back to steal from them and take from them again. And this is, I'll tell you what, this year is more realistic as far as the attackers than last season, if you saw last season. Uh, it's pretty brutal. It's pretty rough. I mean, guys are punching each other. I mean, hitting each other. Uh, the the uh, attackers use pepper spray on them. Uh, they're using clubs, fending people off. It, it, this does not look staged. It looks like people are really being immersed in this environment. Um, 
But everything should have been dedicated to security. Now, what they're doing now is, you know, they're getting, they, they made biodiesel out of these disgusting rotted pig's corpses, and they're using a tractor as a generator to charge your batteries and these power tools to build up a more secure environment. Also, very, very smart. Definitely something they probably need to do. But the security should have been taken to the maximum level that it could have been prior to anything else. 72 hours spent on security would allow then anything that you acquire to not be destroyed or taken from you. All right, And, and I'm going to kind of leave the show at this point, but I wanted to tell you the kind of the motive. When I watched that, I went the whole here, and I wonder how many people think this way. Survival's a camping trip. You know? If you're lost in the woods and you want somebody to come help you and you know what to do, survival can kind of be a camping trip. You can still get killed, but if you do everything right, you focus on the food, water, shelter, and fire, and you're good. You don't have much of, much of a security threat. There's still things like bears, right? Snakes, venomous insects, mechanical injury. These are all security issues, but they're not a security issue like a societal breakdown. And I think that's where we got to go next. We have to understand the threat to our safety. And this is the other reason, you know, I gave you the first reason that, that uh, security goes last in people's minds. And that's because we don't have a physical manifestation of its need on a daily basis. We pretty much walk around feeling fairly secure in the day-to-day world. And that security can go away like that. And then the bigger danger is even though the security is gone, you may not see that it's gone. So that's reason one. Reason two, though is back to our old friend normalcy bias. That in a place where everything has been wrecked on you, the, the concept of, of putting together food, shelter, and, and water for yourself, and having a fire, and being able to have some kind of a life, is not just about surviving, it's about creating some sense of normalcy for you. And you've already had everything else taken away, and the human mind doesn't like to think about being in danger. And we like to think that everybody else is like us and that everybody else is out there trying to put things back together for themselves and doesn't see the shortest distance to their survival as a straight line to taking our shit. We have to understand that there are people like that in the world. Even if it is 1%, 1% is a shitload of people. That means when you walk down a busy street and you look out and you can see a thousand people, well, 1% of that is 10 And how many people does it take to kill you, or steal from you, or rob from you, or harm you, or kill someone you care about? It takes one, and in one crowded street you're looking at ten, with a one percent number. And I believe that number's higher. I don't believe it's 50 or 60 percent, but I believe it's actually somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 percent of people that put into a disaster scenario will turn on their fellow man. Period. And the problem is, over time, that 10% becomes a larger percentage because every time they kill one of the good guys, take out one of the good guys, steal from one of the good guys that starves to death because their method is more expedient in the short term, they lessen the number of good guys out there. So they start to build power with that. We have to understand that threat. We have to understand there are scenarios where there can be no help from government Uh, or from society, or from your neighbor for a long damn time. How long? A month? Two months? A year? We don't know. The scenario in the show is a pandemic. Avian flu makes the leap, becomes highly contagious, and wipes out most of the world's population. In that scenario, it could be years. You might have to completely rebuild. 
And that means at some point you have to start looking around at the other people that are available and 10 people can't rebuild a society. We need more than 10. So you have to start making a determination of who do you bring in and who do you keep out. That can only happen when it's a choice. And choices about who you let in and out of a group can only happen when there is security. Because otherwise people can force their way in. You have to have a point where you can tell people, no, go over there, don't come back unless we come get you, and we'll decide whether you're coming here or not, and if you do, you will come under these rules. And that can, that can only be negotiated from a position of strength. And without security, you have no strength. You also have to make a consideration about where are you going to make your stand. And at different times in the timeline of a disaster, those may be very different things. Now, to be fair to the people in the show, they were put on this 10-acre compound, told you stay here. So they don't have a choice because it's a show, right? It's not real. As realistic as they try to make it, it's fake. We'll talk later about how if we introduced guns into this equation, everything would change like that. But there are no guns because we can't be killing people uh, to make a show real. At least not yet. Our, Hollywood hasn't degraded to that level yet. So, uh, they have to stay there, but in the short duration period that we have, that might not be a place I'd want to stay. It might be a place I want to, because there's all these buildings and there's all kinds of stuff that could be harvested as resources, but I actually might want to make my stand, if I were these people, down the road a bit in a bayou where I don't attract as much attention because anybody wandering around that sees these ripped out, burned out buildings is going to think the same thing that they did. Hey, there's resources and supplies there. And longer term, as you start to put some stability and security back into society, those places may indeed make good places for society to begin rebuilding. But in the very early stages that are represented in this show, they may be the worst place. That may be the place that gets you killed. Hopefully, we're all making our stands in our homes. We have everything we need. We have a given level of comfort. We have a right to the property because we own it. But it may not always be possible. We need to think about security both at home and away. We also need to understand that when we're under attack, first of all, we need to understand when we're under attack. I mean, that may be one of the most important things. And I don't think most people understand what an attack is. I think they understand what a severe attack is. I think they understand what a violent attack is. I think they understand a aggressive attack. But I don't think that people understand where an attack begins or where, or when, or many times when they're under attack, they don't really think that they're, they're under any kind of attack. You might be thinking, you know, has, uh, as Jack Flipper, he's just double talk here, man. What what are you talking about? Here's what I mean. Let's put ourselves in this scenario. Um, there has been a, a, a pandemic or some sort of event that has caused, uh, you know, quarantines, and a lot of people are dead, and services are out, and you're in your home, uh, or you're in some place that you've evacuated to, wherever you are, you have a given amount of resources, you have a given amount of shelter, you, you're doing okay, but you're not doing good. And along comes somebody, or a couple somebodies, and they come to you, and, and the people that are with you, and they say, hey, we want help. And you say, I'm sorry, we can't help you, or here's the limited help we can give you, now leave our area. The minute they don't leave, you are now under attack. And you have to see it that way. Does that mean that you pull out your Ruger .44 Magnum and shoot them between the eyes? No. You might pull out your Ruger 44 Magnum and tell them to unass the area of operations now, 
but you may not want to reveal that you have that capability just yet. You may want to use another means. The key, though, is to understand that you have now been attacked. You have now been assaulted. Again, now, you don't respond with an unnecessary level of response. So we don't go from refusal to leave to death. Okay, We do go to physical removal. You don't want to leave, we're going to remove you. You don't want to be physically removed, we're going to put you into pain. But we must understand at that point, an attack has begun on our person and place by refusal to comply with our wishes that you depart. Okay, That is an attack. If someone came into your house tomorrow, not during a disaster, just during a normal time period, some stranger walked in your house, closed the door behind him, stood in your house. He said, hey, dude, what are you doing? Get out of my house. The guy said, no. Are you not being attacked? Now, you're not being physically beaten, but God, you've got to understand this because in a place where resources are scarce, this is often a deception to look for your weaknesses and gain intelligence upon you so that they can either pursue the attack further now or back off and use the intelligence gain to attack you with more precision and accuracy in the future. So at least we, hopefully we've gotten past that and people understand that where an attack begins. It begins the second that you have a right to ask for a person to depart from your presence and they don't. And anything forward from that, it just increases the voraciousness of the attack. Very mild, I won't leave. What do you have? I want to know what's going on here, right? All the way up to they pull out a gun and shoot you before they ever see you. Or they're shooting at you and you're trying to evade that. Everything in between is still a level of attack. If you're going to be attacked, and in these scenarios we could be. I don't talk about this a lot because I don't like people to walk around paranoid, but we have to be reasonable and understand that when resources are scarce, people will attack to, to acquire those resources. Whether it's you know a theft model of they just want to run in, grab and run out, and they really don't want to hurt anybody, they just want some too, or they're willing to kill you to take it, and again, everything in between. During an attack... There are six methods of attack mitigation. And this may be um, one of the most important things I've ever uh, talked about on the show, one of the most important things that you can learn, because we can't sit around for an hour and talk about just how to fortify your house, because every situation is different. But if you understand the psychology of attack and the methods of, of, uh, of attack mitigation, or repelling an attack, and you understand those, then you can look for ways to enact them. The first one is appeasement. And appeasement gets a bad rap because of a guy named Neville Chamberlain, who was the Prime Minister of England during, you know, before World War II, and enacted a policy of appeasement with Hitler, and that didn't work out real well. And I, I think we can take some lessons from that and understand that appeasement is probably not the best or first option in most scenarios. Remember what I said, though. Someone comes to your house and you say, get out of here, and they don't leave. That's an attack. But we don't pull out the gun and shoot them at that point. What if the person not leaving is your neighbor? And I don't mean in this global, brotherly, loved, hold hands, kumbaya, uh, BS way that they're your neighbor. I mean, they're your neighbor. They're, they're your neighbor from next door that you've known for 10 years, that you've helped fix his car, and he's dropped your kids off at school. Do you club him over the head? Or do you appease him with something reasonable? You know, do you keep a few buckets of rice and corn around cheap carbohydrates that uh, store long and in a, in a short-term disaster you can afford to give some out and say, look, dude, this is all I got for you. And this is all you're ever going to see. Don't come back. Here you go. Or do you maybe use an appeasement 
as part of a strategy to enact one of the other methods of attack mitigation. In other words, it's a feigned appeasement. It's, yeah, yeah, okay, you know, we can do something for you. Let me go get you some food, and you come back with six armed buddies and repel the attack, okay? It could be anything in between, but appeasement is one method. It is probably the least desirable method in a long-term disaster scenario because you become... You become kind of the golden goose. When we need more, we go back here. We meet somebody and they say, hey, that guy has food. You become like the shopping place for everybody to come by and take your stuff without giving you anything. So appeasement done properly can only be done through a position of strength, which might mean putting everybody on the ground, searching them to make sure that they're not armed, letting them know how much power your group has, and sending them away with some small thing to help them survive, because you actually genuinely want to help. But it is not done from a subservient role. If you appease from a position of weakness, you will see that person come back, and they will probably come back with more strength, and they will become a bigger threat to you than they ever had to be. So appeasement is one least desirable and only done from a position of strength or a position of last resort. Guy has a gun to your head and you can't take it away from him and you don't have a gun and he says, give me some food, you give him some freaking food to buy yourself, if nothing else, time to figure out what else to do. So last resort or from a position of strength. The next and one of the most effective methods of attack mitigation is impeding. Impeding attack can be done with physical obstacles. Now, impediment doesn't necessarily mean to stop or to repel, because repel is a different uh, method of attack mitigation. Impediment is to slow down the attack, to make the attack more complicated, to make it more costly. When you see a military position, like a foxhole or a trench uh, or a fort, and out in front of that position, they put something out there like Constantina and barbed wire. That's an impediment. That's impeding the attack. That slows down the attacker. It does a couple things. One, it makes the attacker feel that maybe the attack isn't worth the effort. If I go through all this and come away cut to pieces with holes in my feet uh, and clubbed and beaten and all I got out of it was two cans of peas, I would probably be better off eating bark off a tree. It just isn't worth it. That's one concept of impediment, to make the attacker feel that the, the, that the, the, the reward is not worth the effort. Another thing with impediment, though, is if you slow the attack down, you have an opportunity to go to the next level of attack mitigation, which is to repel. And your, your repelling efforts can be much better if the attack is impeded. So while the guy's tangled in the barbed wire, that's the best time to set the claymores off, right, and fire the M16s. Now, I'm not talking about your house. I don't want claymores and M16s at your house, and some nut job somewhere is going to say that I've, I've, I've advocated that now because they're an idiot in a nut job. But what I'm saying is, in the military scenario, that's the analogy. So if I set something up around my property, like a fence, right, and on the other side of that fence, I set up a blockade. And on the other side of that blockade, I set up a second blockade. And then someone is trying to get into my area. Each time they go over an obstacle, they present a vulnerability that makes them more vulnerable to my or my group's attack back at them. While they're impeded is our opportunity to subdue, to club, to shoot, to beat, 
to light a fire, to do whatever it is that we're going to do to go to the next level, which is to repel. If we repel the attack, it's been mitigated. So that is to cause the enemy to retreat. Right? That's, that's to repel. That doesn't necessarily mean to kill, because that's another attack mitigation strategy. So to repel, the goal is to make the attacker decide to back off on their own. So impediment slows it down. To repel actually stops, halts, and reverses the attack. All right? The next method of attack mitigation is evasion. And that is to simply not be there when the attack occurs. This is a martial arts principle. You throw a punch at me, sure I could block it, or I could counter it, or I could simply step aside or step back. So if I'm not there when your blow lands, you become vulnerable. Because you overshoot the target, and then you present me a vulnerability which I can attack. That's why it's the most sophisticated method of combat, is evasion, uh, when I'm talking about hand-to-hand combat. So, rather than meeting force on force, we evade. In a disaster scenario, evasion might be <clears throat> taking all of our supplies, once we know we've been made, and evacuating the area, going somewhere else, getting out of dodge, so to speak. And when the attack comes, they get nothing. They get an empty compound with no resources and no materials. And maybe, if the threat's dangerous enough, a booby-trapped environment. All right? The next method of attack mitigation is misdirection. Misdirection is to confuse. And, and this is, a, I'm going to go back to the, the show The Colony again, and I've seen this in both episodes, and I've not seen anybody in either season yet figure this out. These people take all the food they can muster, and then they set up a little shelf somewhere in the inventory, and they put it all in one freaking place, right? In a central location, like it's a freaking supermarket, like it's a pantry. That's really stupid. That's really the stupidest thing you could do in a survival scenario like that. Why? Because once you're breached, if the attackers breach the area that food's stored in, that's going to be a high prize in a disaster scenario. It doesn't matter if it's ammunition. It doesn't matter if it's medical supplies. It doesn't matter if it's comfort items and blankets. When, when items are stored in one central location, once the location is breached, the objective becomes clear to the attacker. Grab everything that's here and run. Okay. It would be much more intelligent as part of a misdirection strategy to spread all of your materials out into small caches throughout your compound or your home or your area. So that if an area becomes breached, the amount that you can lose is mitigated. Now everybody in your group, whether it's a small family or a makeshift group or a planned group, has to know all the cache locations and what's in each location. So they can be really, so if you die, you get killed, everybody else that's left behind doesn't, you know, you haven't squirreled stuff away where they can't find it. So it's not about not sharing with other members of your group, it's about mitigating the attack through misdirection. Misdirection can take many, uh, many facets. Misdirection can be to make yourself look more armed than you are. For the people that would attack you to never know how many people you really have. To believe that maybe you have maybe six, and to create the illusion that maybe you have 60. Because if there's six, I'm more likely to win in an attack than against 60. So not showing your numbers. Not tilting your hand for you poker players. Not giving tells. Not giving away information. Or more importantly, misdirection is about giving false information. False information might be, hey, you know what? There's actually a government help center about 10 miles north of here. We're planning on going there eventually. We're just not ready yet. 
and maybe there's nothing ten miles away. You know, you're playing a, you're playing a hand of cards there. There might be some people coming back really angry with you, but it gives you time. Misdirection would include every time you empty a can of canned goods, filling it up with dirt, and keeping all of the empty, useless items in a place that's most likely to be breached first. So if you are breached, and your security does fail, and people do grab and run away, they get a can full of gravel. And they may just think, these people are nuts. They've gone freaking stir-crazy. And since you fought, tried to fight them off for a can of gravel, they're thinking, we're not going back there. These people don't have anything. They're idiots. Or you take rotten food. Right? Or you take something you could eat but never would want to. And you make that look like your store of food. You know, what if the colonists with these rotten pigs had taken the refuse from the rotten pig sealed them in cans somehow, and put them in a place where if the attackers came and stole them, that's what they would get, rotten pig meat. Oh, we're not going back there. Huh. You know? Or maybe they need it. I don't know. But you see what I'm saying? Misdirection is about creating opportunities that aren't really opportunities. You give the person a place to breach your security that's actually well fortified. You give the person something to steal that's actually worthless but looks valuable to them. That's misdirection. The final one is termination. It's the ultimate way to stop an attack, but it is the last resort. No one wants to kill anybody else unless they have to. That's pretty self-explanatory. Termination is you put a bullet in him, you cut his throat, you hit him in the head with a club hard enough to fracture his skull. That's termination. And it's a last-ditch effort. But you better understand it because it may come down to a point where it's necessary and the people attacking you may see it as their first option. And the minute termination is the first option of your attacker, it becomes your first option whether you like it or not. And you have to be prepared for it. And I'm telling you, if guns were introduced into this scenario, the whole reality show becomes real and very bloody and very, very dirty instantly. And everything we're talking about becomes more important. One of the first things you have to do for security, though, is identify your weak spots. Where are you vulnerable? In your home, your primary vulnerabilities are your windows. It's much easier to breach a window than a door. I can breach a window with a rock. And once I have a hole in that window, I can come through it. So we need to look at methods to impede, repel, and misdirect our attackers at our weak spots which is our doors and windows. So in a disaster scenario, one of the first things that we need to do is to make sure that maybe we can see out but people can't see in, creating some level of concealment. That allows for misdirection. That's one reason I'm a big fan of solar screens. And if you were to come to my house, you would look at my house and see black windows that you can't see in. If you're out there, I can see you perfectly. All right, That's one method of impediment. I'm not impeding. Now, you can still get through my screen with a rock right, and a club. But I'm impeding your vision, your ability to see into the structure without impeding my own. The minute there's a disaster and a potential threat, we may need to start barricading and stacking things at windows. Right? We may need to put, put barricades to keep people from the windows on the outside. And we need to do the same things with doors. That's one of the most important things. Now, when we were watching this show, and these, the, the second attack came, and there was like 25 attackers, maybe more, maybe 35 attackers on, on 10 people that were completely disorganized. My wife said, well, when there's that many people, you know, other than a guy up on the roof with a gun picking them off, uh, which isn't going to happen in, in the scenario they've set up on the show, how do you fight 
when you're largely outnumbered. And we can learn that lesson from a true historical event that a kind of fictitious movie was based on called 300. Uh, for those that don't know, the Spartans, with 300 men, held off one of the largest armies in the world for not ever, and they eventually all died, but for a very long time, with hand-to-hand combat. You know, These guys with swords and spears and shields fighting a huge army armed the same way, plus armed with archers. And the way they were willing, able to do that was to force the enemy into an area that was narrow for attack. So that even though it was a massive column, at the point where they met, you mitigate the attacker's numeric advantage. So my response to my wife was, the way you do this is you funnel your attackers. And that's the way you set up any place you're trying to secure. You create only a few areas of perceived vulnerability, a few areas of a way in. And when the attackers take that way in, they unfortunately find out through misdirection, right, that it's actually the most secure environment you've created. It's your rallying point. It's where it's battle stations. So all of a sudden, the fact that there's 40 people doesn't, doesn't matter as much because they can only fit five abreast. And they're much easier to repel, evade, misdirect, or terminate at that point. Right? And we're not appeasing a crowd of 60. It, it's battle time if you have a crowd of 60. And we have to inflict damage at a high level to make some portion of that crowd decide, this is not the place for me. There are better people to pick on. And unfortunately, that probably has to come with numbers like that from firearms. From a point of concealment. And from a single warning to depart... And then, then it begins. And I am sorry that that's the way that it is at certain points and time. Now, this is the worst case scenario I'm talking about today. I want to, I want to continue to reiterate that. This is society has gone to hell. But in that scenario, this is the way you have to think. And if you can think to the extreme, it's very easy to back off in a less dangerous scenario, but it's much more difficult to think halfway and try to amp up to that scenario. And unlike this show where these guys get to learn these lessons over, over a period of 50 days, the first time you fail, you're probably dead. Or, or maybe evicted from your own compound and, and naked and starving. That's reality. Again, I don't like to talk about this a lot, but sometimes we have to. Now, I want to talk a little bit about guns because they do change the entire equation. And you have to understand they do it on both sides. There is a big difference from trying to secure your property from five people armed with clubs and sticks than from five people armed with guns. And in a worst case scenario, the smart person armed with guns is not going to make a frontal assault. They would snipe you from a distance. They would identify you as a target. They would determine that you have resources available. They would recon the position to determine what your strength in numbers was. And they would wait for the opportunity to kill the most of you in the shortest time possible, and then they would act on it. That's the skilled band of looters. That's the, you know, 5% of military people that are just like the 5% of all people that are willing to do it, but they have the training and the knowledge of how to do it. They're the biggest threat. It's not the biker gang, because the biker gang doesn't have that. It's the people with the training that then abuse the training to attack the vulnerable. So, I hate to tell you this, 
But there are scenarios where if you are the attacked, you just may not have any opportunity whatsoever. That does exist. You can do everything possible to mitigate and protect yourself with it. And a lot of the information I've given you today can help you with that. But the day that you believe that you will be safe and secure no matter what, that you are invulnerable, you are a lot closer to death. Because you start making mistakes when you feel that way. To make this system work, there's two things that you have to put into place. And they have to be thought about in advance, but enacted immediately at a time that there's a threat. And those are security protocols and security procedures. And I want to talk about the difference between the two. Because how you'll set them up is different for you than me. You have a different location. You have a different plan. You have a different threat level. Uh, you have a different terrain. You, I mean, there's so many things that are different. But a protocol is something we live with. A protocol is something we do every day. A protocol is we are now in a, in a, a high-risk scenario. There is now the potential that somebody will come take what we have. So protocol might be nobody in the group is ever without arms. We are always armed, and we never go anywhere alone. There is always a group of at least two or more, and everybody always knows if one group of two or more goes somewhere to do something where they can't be seen. That is a protocol. It doesn't matter whether the sun is shining or it's raining. It doesn't matter whether we're under attack or we're not. A protocol, once entered into, is a way of life. A procedure is for an acute situation. So a procedure is we're all obeying our protocols and now we are attacked. What is our procedure during an attack? Does everybody fall back to a central location and take up a point? And the procedure, it's important that every party in the procedure doesn't just know their role, but they know everybody else's role. So let's say we have a house that we're defending. We have a group of 10 people defending the home. And we're enacting our protocols, and we're living with our protocols on communication, lookout. So protocol might be there is always an observer, somebody that's in a prime position as what we call in the military an LPOP, a listening post observation post. That could be a structure created on a roof, But there is always one or more people on guard. They see the threat is imminent. They see the approach. Everybody's not farting around playing camper like on the stupid show. right? Somebody's paying attention for a specific threat at all times. That's a protocol. Everybody else is doing what they're supposed to do under current protocol. The attack's seen. The alarm is sounded. Everybody falls back, to let's say, to the house. That's the arts, the, our point we're going to make our stand. Everything is set up to impede, repel, and misdirect our attackers. But in this scenario, we have vulnerable points in the house. So maybe I am to take up position alpha, which is by a window. And Bob is supposed to take up position beta by another window. If Bob is supposed to be in my line of sight, I'm checking to see that he's there. This does two things. One, if he's not, because he's already been taken out in the initial phases of the attack, I'm able to sound the alarm that, hey, we need coverage on that, that position uh, beta, right? We've got to have it. Now, is, you know, and we also have levels of importance. So a position that somebody's in upstairs may be less important if, if beta's not covered. So somebody has to know to go there and cover that position. If he is there, I don't worry about him, and I don't worry about his job. And without a procedure, that doesn't happen. And if you watch the first couple episodes of this show... 
what you see during an attack, and I'll give these people credit, they fought and they were proud. Well, I'm pretty proud. The one girl's like, I'm proud because we, we didn't run, we fought. And they did fight. They got their asses handed to them. And in a real scenario, they'd probably all be dead. What you saw was panic. No one really knew what to do, where to go. And because of that, everybody's worried about everybody else. And from some of the coming attractions, it looks like one of these people gets abducted by the outsiders. Right? And that's another possible scenario, is the abduction of one of your people. There's a lot of reasons for that. Scumbags might want to abduct a woman just to rape her. Other scumbags might want to abduct anybody. Why? They know you have goods and materials. You want your person back? Give us some stuff. Give us all your stuff. Or we slit his throat. And we'll hang him from a tree 50 feet from your house so you can watch him dangle. Again, I don't like to talk about this darker side, but this is reality. This is what can occur in a worst case scenario. So by having a procedure, we don't present vulnerabilities. And if we do have an attack and it doesn't go perfect, now we can adjust the procedure and address the protocol. But we have to have both of them in place. And you can start by having simple protocols in place in your daily life. Things like, you know, I don't always take the same way to work and home. I take little different ways here and there, just so I'm not patternable. Might be paranoid, but you know what? doesn't really hurt anything, and I change my scenery. We never, you know, one of our protocols is we never leave home without a means of communication. There's always a cell phone or a radio or some way that we can communicate with other people when we leave the house. No one leaves without a means of communication, right? Protocols, very, very important. Protocols are when we use something from the pantry, it goes on a list and it gets replaced. Procedure is something bad has happened. I'm away from the house. Dorothy's away from the house. Go to the cars, get the documentation packages, establish communication, and put in a plan, whether it's to rally back at home or get the hell out of Dodge. That's a procedure. Procedures are for acute situations. Protocols are for daily living. Now, there's probably somebody out there with a Webster's Dictionary uh, or uh, somebody else's definition of this that will differ with me. That's fine. I don't care what your definition is. I'm telling you how to think. That you need systems in place both for day-to-day operations and acute situations. And everybody needs to know their job. Everybody needs to know everybody else's job. And at the minute that the acute situation occurs, there needs to be a plan and a response, a battle stations plan. And without that, you are more vulnerable than you have to be and your odds of surviving go down. I also wanted to talk real, real quick again as we're getting ready to wrap up today about the need to split up your resources and no central points. I kind of went early with it uh, earlier that I had it planned in my outline because it's so critical. But it is the biggest mistake that preppers make even day-to-day in a peacetime situation. If all of your food is in one place in your home, you are wrong. If all of your food is in one room in your house, you are wrong. I'm sorry, you are. Because... You could have a weather event that destroys half your house. What if it happens to be the half of your house without all your food and water? Your food and water must be distributed throughout your house. Does that mean that you might not have a really big, deep, well-organized storage pantry? No. That's fine. But it also does mean that the second you get into a really dangerous security situation, we go from basic prepping because I might lose my job to holy crap, the world is melting around me, that you go to that central location, you begin breaking it up into smaller caches and distributing it throughout your home. 
if someone breaches, you want them to get two things and two things only. As, as little as possible, and a belief that there isn't very much worth coming back for. So if someone breaches and you, you impede them and eventually repel them, but they get away with a couple cans of Campbell's soup and all they saw was two more cans, they're probably not coming back. Oh, those people are as bad off as we are. You know? What, what are, it's not worth it. We got the shit beat out of us. Maybe one of our guys got really injured or killed and we got very little and there didn't look like there was much else. So if you do get attacked, even if they don't get anything, if they get visual confirmation, of your supplies. You want that visible, visual confirmation to be these people don't have very much. When you centrally locate items, even in a secure area, the minute that the person breaches the visual context of that area, they don't actually have to get it. You might repel them today, but now they've seen it. Now they know. The minute that happens, you become elevated on the target list. So we have to think that way. No central storage during a highly uh, dangerous security situation. Ever. Ever. Biggest mistake made. And most people would make it. Because it seems like the right thing to do. But when you evaluate it from a, from a logistical standpoint, it's the worst thing that you can possibly do. You know, It's one thing for the military to set up a mess hall in an armory. But the military has a large number of troops and a sufficient force to put uh, safety and security around those two caches. In a small group situation or a family situation, you your likelihood of being breached is much greater. And even the military doesn't put all their eggs in one basket, so to speak. For an individual platoon or an individual company deployment, there may be a mess hall. Right, And there may be an ammo point in an armory. But somewhere off of that location is a resupply point. We don't put everything that's reasonably available in one location. Learn that lesson. Learn it well. Uh, next is uh, developing and deploying decoy resources. This is something we already talked about, but I want to talk about it again. Because it's an extremely effective strategy. If you put some things out in the distance, so to speak, outside, that look like reasonable resources out where you have obstacles for impediment, and those are the things people get away with. Again, now we're using misdirection. We're creating the illusion that we don't have much. The war defending is not worth much. We also create another level of impediment. While a person is going through hell trying to get to what they perceive as a valuable resource, not only can we take the opportunity to repel the attack, but they're expending energy on something that has no reward. Misdirection and decoy resources may be your best option because force-on-force engagement is far uglier than most people that play Red Dawn in their head think it is. It's not glorious, and you're not likely to win. You are at a decided disadvantage when you are in a central location and your attackers can come from a 360-degree point and they don't need to get in today. They just need to continuously weaken you until they wear you down and when you have one bad day, they get in. And even if you kill them, there's another group. You're at a disadvantage. You have to use everything you can to your advantage. Decoy resources, fake resources, empty resources... High risk for low reward. That plays on the psychology of the enemy. These people don't have very much. They're barely surviving. They'll fight us like hell. Even if we get in there, we're not getting much. 
Let's go pick an easier target for now. Because all you ever want to do is buy yourself time in the hope that you can find allies and that some level of order will be restored. The last thing I want to talk about is developing timelines and evacuation plans. There is a time that you take a location and decide, I don't really want to be here anymore. This is too much of a vulnerability. If you're waiting for help, if you're waiting for assistance, you have to set a finite point at which, while you still have enough resources to make it happen, you choose to evacuate the situation. Now, if you're in a position of strength, and your position is is probably the best you're going to find with re within reason, then you want to establish that as your base camp and you want to stay there. But in a lot of situations, you may have to realize that, hey, look, we're going to try to tough it out here for two weeks. During that two weeks, we're going to enact all the security protocols we can. We're going to build up all the resources we can. But if help doesn't look like it's coming in two weeks, we need to get out of here. We're, tar we're bigger targets here than we would be elsewhere. Now, you need to make that decision with logic. There's often a, 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 a desire in the human mind that somewhere else is better, but the grass ain't always greener, as the cliche tells us. But we do have to have that contingency plan, and we have to put timelines against it. And without that, we end up making bad decisions like continuing to stay in a place where we're constantly attacked and harassed. Now, there's a, a belief that people have that once we put the security in place, that we're relatively safe. Well, we're still not. As long as we have a visible place that we're, we're kind of camped up in, and there's human beings there, and this is where people say stuff like, well, I don't want a garden, Jack. If I have a garden, then I'll be a target if this kind of thing ever does happen. If you are a human being and you are observed living in a scenario where many people are dying, you have to have something to keep you alive. That makes you a target, garden or not. That's another stupid thing I heard in this show. These people were talking about planting a garden. They're going to be there 50 days. They're not going to get anything out of it. You know, unless they have something they can grow real quick and easy, like uh, greens or something. And that's not a high, uh, high carbohydrate or high calorie uh, thing. So it's probably not good in their scenario. But a garden makes sense at your house, it makes sense at your bug out location. Perennials that produce over and over make sense. Do these things become targets? Yes, but so do you. So does the structure. So does anything that creates life. If you have fire, you have resources. If you have a, a jerry-rigged headlight out of a car lighting your structure at night, you have resources. It's known. It's advertised. And there's points at which you have to decide that the area you're in is too hostile. And you have to look for an area that has less perceived resources, but possibly more. And I think that's what we're going to talk about tomorrow, is learning to create resources. There's a lot of lessons from this show, The Colony. And one is a misunderstanding of resources. So that's what I'm going to talk about tomorrow. Understanding the local vegetation, understanding how to survive, understanding some wilderness skills and how they can be used in urban or suburban burnout environments. And uh, how not to always try to play, you know, junkyard wars in a survival scenario. We're going to talk about that tomorrow. For today, I hope I've given you a new way to look at security, a new way to understand security, and to realize that just because you have that nice AR or that nice AK, you're not maybe as safe as you think you are. And you need to put more planning into what you would do. Now, does that mean you start rolling Constantina wire out in your yard now? No, but it might mean, I mean, it's up to you. It might mean that you have a few coils of it stored in your storage shed that could be deployed. It might mean that you just simply look around and go, well, what could I use to create barricades and barriers? So you just run mental scenarios so that when the time comes, if it ever comes, and God ho ho hope, you know, God help us that it does not. 
But if, if it ever does, instead of sitting around and having the resources to do these things with, but not recognizing them for what they are, you know immediately what to do. You can establish protocols and you can establish procedures quickly. And make sure that in any group, one or two people are at the head of that group. One or two people are the commanders. There has to be commanders in a group. That's another thing that I don't see on this show yet. I don't see anybody that stepped up really as a leader and said, look, this is what we're going to do. You know, and if you have a better idea, bring it to the table. If you don't, shut up and let's do it. And you have to take that level of a leadership role because the majority of humanity needs it. Whoever doesn't have the ability to do that desperately needs somebody else to do it. So that they can have confidence in themselves and confidence in their group and confidence in their leadership. There's a certain air of confidence that has to be presented in a disaster scenario, even if you have to fake it. I remember it when my wife was in intractable pain and she needed surgery and she had been on this medication for years. And this doctor came in with a little bit of arrogance, but not too much. And what he said is, I wish you would have come to me sooner. You're far at far less risk with me operating on you than you have been for nine years of taking those drugs. And that was what we needed to hear because we were in a panic situation where we could not exercise any control over what was going on. In a disaster scenario, somebody else may need that from you. And that may be the most important thing about security you can create. Because when you're surrounded by people that are panicked, running around with their heads cut off and don't know what to do when an attack occurs... That makes it more likely that you're going to end up, you're probably better off alone. But you don't want to give up the numbers. You don't want to give up the resources of the other people. So it's incumbent upon somebody in that group to lead. And with that, I will sign off. Again, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Nobody up there cares, they're living for today.